what we really brought to the table was the fact that we did not quit. And one of the 10th grade teachers that joined last year when we started, I believe she said, it's sort of like you guys were the first wave at Normandy, storming the beaches, taking all the hits and just having to get through to the other side. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton, and that was Mike Quaz, ninth grade social studies teacher at Cheltenham High School. When Mike talks about storming the beaches at Normandy, he's referring to the first year of project-based learning at Cheltenham. This is episode three in our series about the mission to bring project-based learning, or PBL, to Cheltenham High School, a 135-year-old public school just outside Philadelphia. In this episode, all the visions, plans, and ideas turn into reality with actual teachers and actual students. If you want to find out how the district laid the foundations for this program, we have links to the first two episodes in the show notes. But you can also jump in right here, and this episode will make sense on its own. Okay, here we go. In its first year, the PBL team consisted of three ninth grade teachers, Johanna Sella teaching biology, Brian Smith teaching English, and Mike Quaz teaching social science. That was the team awaiting the students at the start of the year in September 2017. They had their own hallway with classrooms next to each other, they had a four-hour block of time from the start of school until lunch, and they'd already planned their first project. Here's Mike to explain it. We had worked on the time we had on a project, we call it the Who Am I Project, which is like introspective, who the kids are and all those things. And they were going to make a big plywood construction house, you know, with their groups and they each had a panel, so to speak, expressing who they were. To be clear, that was the project for the start of school. All three teachers would be working on it together. They also had a radical approach to discipline. We wanted them to lead themselves. And we thought by kind of allowing them to sort of create their own structure, eventually they would realize, hey, we need to kind of police ourselves. We need some more rules. We need this. We need that. So though we were clear that there were rules, we did not want to start off by managing them like a normal classroom. But fundamentally, the teachers had no idea what was in store for them, and they knew it. Here's what biology teacher Johanna Sella told me when I asked her about the end of that summer, just before the school year started. What were you thinking? What was going through your mind? Honestly, I think we're just so uncertain as to what, one, what what we were doing exactly, slash what the students were going to be like, that there wasn't too much, to be quite honest. I was kind of, at the moment, was in the whole come what may mindset of this is definitely going to have to be one of those we figure out on the fly kind of deals. On the first day of school, the PBL program began. Dr. Marseille, the superintendent, was there for the launch, along with Colin McCarthy from the Avalon Foundation and the rest of the district-level administrators who started the program. You can learn more about them in episodes one and two. Mike remembers the energy. Oh, I mean, it was exciting. The kids felt like, boy, this is a special program. We all had, like, we all got, like, our props from Colin and the administration. You got these great teachers. You're in great hands. And everybody was pretty excited. We did like the uh, newspaper tower where you build, a, you build a tower out of newspapers while everybody else is getting taught the rules and going through your normal procedures of homework and all that. We're making stuff and the kids are excited, right? We got music playing. So, you know, that was like, that was a great first day. Matt Pimental and Brian Riley, who are two of the architects of the program at a district level, explain more about the theory behind starting with that newspaper tower game. You'll hear Matt's voice first in this clip, and then Brian's. The teachers really wanted 
to show them like day one, this is not like what you normally do. Mm-hmm. They did like a really simple, like who can build the tallest tower out of newspaper and masking tape kind of thing. Yeah. Students very quickly start teaming up. They start collaborating. They start doing all the sort of things that you want to see people do in a PBL environment. They start doing it very naturally in this sort of competitive, but silly and simple kind of task. Yeah. Um, and then that then becomes the sort of the fodder for a discussion, a conversation about what skills did you just utilize in order to accomplish this task with your peers. Yeah. So I know that like that was a part of it. And then they also had the kids going outside a lot, all sort of like a series of games and collaborative experiences that were sort of non-scholastic that were there to sort of kickstart a student culture that was going to be centered on kids and having kids taking a leadership role over the culture of their own group. Yeah. And a lot of it was whole group. So it wasn't, we're going to do this in the biology class, and at the same time, we'll do it in the English class. So it wasn't taking the kids and separating them into three different classrooms. It was having them do that together, having the teachers do it with them. So um, they started the year as one collective group to kind of set that tone that, you know, we're, we're, we are all PBL, and we're going to move forward together um, rather than in these smaller pockets, which looks a lot like traditional school would have yeah. looked. So that was 62 students in one room. I asked one of those 62 students, Kayla, about her first impressions. Well, we're coming out of high school, freshmen, so that's interesting. And PBL is like a whole little section for the PBL kids. And like it's this humongous room with like power tools and like these fancy tables and fancy chairs and like four teachers in one room. And like I, I liked it. The vibe was there. It was nice. It was like it was calming. It was, it was bright. I kind of liked that. Unlike in the rest of Cheltenham High School, there was no honors group in PBL, and that was by design. Just like at High Tech High, where there's no student tracking by perceived academic ability, this was going to be a desegregated, inclusive program. And just as it does at High Tech High, this approach presented distinctive challenges. We had some very intense personalities in that group, and I, I mean, we literally had like the spectrum of personalities. We had I wouldn't be surprised if this student is like the valedictorian. And then we had some students who had no idea what PBL was and they just got put in there. And then there was the challenge of running a multidisciplinary project. We got to the point like, well, we have our basic foundation of what it is we want to try to do, but we haven't planned together to coordinate exactly how we're going to do it. So we basically were staying, you know, one or two days ahead of the kids. And Mike, Johanna and Brian were still figuring out how to work with each other. Every decision, there are a number of questions, like, okay, we're going to do this. But there's three personalities of how we're going to do this. Uh, And you learn, though, even though we had all this training between the three teachers, we may have had our own impression of what we were seeing. Some of that got hashed out, obviously, through the planning process. But it wasn't until you get into real time with the kids, you start to understand each other and the styles and the strengths and weaknesses of, you know, not only the kids, but each of us on the team. So, you know, we were meeting, we'd go for the four hours with the kids. And it's not like we, if I remember correctly, we did not have a lot of common prep time at that point as well. So we would just go right from that four hour, three and a half hour block to be more specific with the kids into basically debriefing the three of us sitting in our, in the STEM lab, in the makerspace, uh, by the way, we didn't have all our furniture quite yet. All the equipment wasn't up and running, right? The, the, the band, all the bandsaw, whatever it was. So there we, we didn't even have stools, I think, 
for our big works tables. So we just basically for that 40 minutes until somebody had to go teach a class, it may have even been 30 minutes, we'd eat our lunch and we'd debrief and we'd try to figure out what we're going to do next. And then we would meet after school, at least, you know, a couple of us would meet after school trying to piece some of the things together. The teachers were literally making it up as they went along. But how could it have been any different? Nobody in the entire school district had ever done this before. They were making it up because that's what you have to do when you're doing something brand new. This was not lost on the students. Here's Kayla again with another student, Simon. It was like we were guinea pigs, really, because we were like the pilots and we were the guinea pigs of PBL, and it wasn't really the. It was the just best. it's kind of hard to handle as yes. freshmen because we're mm-hmm. changing. We were a lot. immature as mm-hmm. freshmen, and then we had a lot of like things put on us. Like we had to. Uh, we pretty much weren't mature enough to handle all of the uh, projects and all the freedom that we had in like the space. They had no idea what was going on. We had no idea what was going on. So it was just like a bunch of chaos, really. As you can imagine, there were some unrealistic expectations on both sides. From the teachers. We thought they were going to be, oh, this is great. We love this, right? We love these projects. And from the students. A lot of us tried to almost like fight the teachers, not like physically, but like argue how we should be being taught, even though like neither sides were technically correct. Here's how Mike puts it. When you empower the kids like that, when they're not happy, you're going to feel it. Linda Sunny, a 10th grade teacher, was also on the team that year, but only as an observer. So she'd be ready to take the students the following year when they entered 10th grade. When she talked to Johanna, Brian, and Mike, she could tell that things weren't going entirely to plan. They had sort of like lost that excitement in their eyes that we had over the summer when we were so excited to start the program. So what had extinguished that glint of excitement? Well, there was the realization that they knew almost nothing about projects, there was the lack of shared planning time, and then there was that radical approach to discipline that I mentioned earlier, inspired by their trip to High Tech High. For the district-level team, that approach to discipline was epitomized by the teacher's policy when it came to the bathroom. They were just like, well, the bathroom's right there, so just go. Because that was like something specific they had seen from High Tech High. Um, But it wasn't scaffolded. Okay, I need to clarify one thing. I taught at High Tech High for five years, and in my classes, students checked with me before going to the bathroom. So this total bathroom freedom, whether scaffolded or otherwise, is not a core part of High Tech High's disciplinary policy. Anyway, I asked Kayla and Simon about this, and at first they rejected the premise that this policy caused any problems. The bathrooms are literally right across the hall from the PBL room when we were in freshmen. So I don't don't know about that. But Kayla did agree with the key point. I mean, yeah, maybe it might, like, the hallways and, like, because um, we were freshmen, we were immature. So if we yeah. go in the hallway, of course, we're, they're probably going <laughs> to be loud and like start playing around. I guess that was a problem. And remember, this noise is happening in the hallway of a big, mostly traditional high school. Actually, it's worse than that. Here's Charlene Collins, Cheltenham's director of secondary education. We had uh, one team of our eighth graders in the building. And because the teachers observed behaviors that they didn't feel was becoming of an academic program, I think they kind of didn't lead kids to think that this would be a good opportunity for them. So that really um, created some issues for us for recruiting the year after. Just isolating the fact that, like, too many kids were in the hallways, how much did that set you back? I think a great deal, even with them in terms of the rest of the school community, because what they saw was play and no work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have kids being idle and looking idle, you know, people are like, so what are they, what are they, what are they learning? What are they doing? Mike and the rest of the ninth grade team were highly conscious of this. 
I would say from the building level, there were a lot of eye, you know, raised eyebrows and rolled eyes, and, you know, from, from numerous teachers, oh, this PBL isn't going to work. Uh, we knew this wasn't going to work. Uh, why'd they spend money, all this money and do all this stuff? All you teachers listening right now, picture a hallway in your school being remodeled for a brand new initiative launched with fanfare and local press attention where three teachers are spending an entire morning with a total of 62 kids to try out an approach to learning that sounded crazy to you from the start. If you heard that the kids were running wild, how inclined would you be to give the teachers the benefit of the doubt? With this in mind, I want to replay something that Mike said in the last episode because it bears revisiting. This decision is, you know, beyond my pay grade, but to look 10,000 feet up, if it was possible to start without all the fanfare and all the, uh, guess what, everybody, we're going to revolutionize education and just kind of quietly do our thing. It's possible that some things would have organically come into places without, you know, the resistance from the quote unquote system. When I was doing interviews for this episode, I wasn't expecting a whole lot of specific insights about why things were going off the rails in that first semester. I mean, of course they were, right? No one had done this before, and they were doing it extremely publicly. But in my interviews, people kept focusing on one particular detail, which I recommend you pay attention to as well if you're thinking about trying this in your own school. This was happening in ninth grade. Why is that important? Well, prior to this year, Mike had been teaching fifth and sixth grade. He had no experience teaching ninth grade whatsoever. Brian had taught ninth grade in the past, but his most recent experience was teaching creative writing and film studies, neither of which ninth graders were allowed to take. Joanna was the only teacher who'd been teaching ninth grade the year before. Now, ninth grade is very much its own thing. I've never taught it, but I've always regarded ninth grade teachers as the elite teachers of high school, because apart from their official curriculum, they spend the year teaching middle schoolers how to be high school students. And Kayla and Simon picked up on the lack of experience from the teachers right away. Since they had no idea how to teach freshmen, nor that they had no idea how to teach PBL, we didn't really, we weren't mature either, so it just didn't flow. So what did the teachers do? How did they keep this from crashing and burning? Well, this is not the route I would have taken, but one of their more memorable innovations was the cohort meeting, an unstructured meeting of all 62 students during which teachers would leave the room, watch from next door through a window, and let the kids work out their issues. I think we had at least four or five of those. Yeah. One of them started, there was some, you know, minor theft going on. And we're like, oh, great. How do you build community when we have some thievery, right? Yep. So... Joanna, she was missing like a, a pudding or something. And so we're kind of like, what do we do about it? Well, if we just go through the normal routine, you know how that's going to go. So we put them in a room. We said, look, there's been some concern over some theft. And, you know, Joanna said, my pudding was stolen. You guys got to sort through this. This is your group. How do you feel about it? What can we do about it? It was something like that. And we put some kind of prompts and we left the room. Kids would go out of the room crying. They can't do it anymore. And we'd have to kind of all get take a different bunch of kids and kind of put it all back together. And then they meet in the room and they get back together and they would come to some common understanding and appreciation. That's cool. Yeah. And I, I'd say I had within that first year, out of my 20 years of teaching at that point, I had my best years and my worst years, sometimes in the same week. Not everyone was totally enamored of these meetings. Here's Brian Smith, the English teacher. An hour's worth of processing feelings, I think we were spinning our wheels at times. But for Charlene, this growing sense of community was a sign of hope. I was sorry about how they were able to build a sense of community and how the kids look like they're kind of coming together and working collaboratively. 
What they were working collaboratively on, as you may recall, was the Who I Am project, where they were building the plywood houses that we talked about earlier. They finished that project, and they had their first exhibition. This is what convinced Kayla's parents that the PBL program was the right place for their daughter. After they came to like the first exhibition and they saw that we were really learning a lot of stuff and everything, they, that's when they really became on board with PBL. And they saw how I was like changing and like becoming more confident in myself and like making more relationships, I guess. The exhibition was a high point for Mike Quaz. Parents were happy. Kids were happy. There were hugs. There were cheers. There were smiles. And for Brian Smith. The students really amazed us and we saw the potential in what students can do when they're doing something for community members, parents, and uh, a bigger group than just maybe taking a test or a quiz for a teacher to grade. So exhibition was a hit, and the team entered winter break battered but still standing, which is how I entered every winter break when I was a teacher. But in the new year, they started to hear concerns from parents. In January, some of the parents of our most academically engaged started saying, well, what are they really learning? Is this program right for my kid? Are they being challenged? And here's the other part of it. You take honors students who have learned the system and learned the game well, even though they know they're not happy with it, when you pull that rug out from under them completely, and now all of a sudden they're not as secure as what they are learning, or if they have the right answer, because you're saying, well, you need to think it through. I'll guide you, but I'm not going to give you the answer. And they're used to very specifics, you know, jumping through hoops. Even some of our great kids with the projects at times would kind of get, get angst over, well, just tell me what it is. Meanwhile, at the district level, Matt and Brian were worried about the scale of the projects the teachers were tackling. One of the challenges was that first project that we did, um, at the time, what we were thinking was that we bit off more than we could chew. It was a big project. The, the students actually built, they built houses that were like three feet tall and five feet long and maybe two feet wide or about that size, like pretty large wooden structures. And that's one of the reasons why exhibition kept getting pushed back, pushed back. And also there was so much collaboration because it was trying to pull together three teachers. Mm -hmm. So then the shift was like, all right, we need to like shrink this down a little bit, make this more manageable and also potentially like partner up in different ways. So I know then it just sort of started to become an experiment of like different scales of project. Because I know at that point, they're like, we need to go small. Mm-hmm. I believe, too, didn't they separate at that point? Because this was a full collaborative project. Yes. And I think they just needed some time in their own content, focus on themselves. The decision to pause the collaboration was not entirely well received. Because of the lack of common planning time and what have you, from the administration like Matt and Brian Riley, and they said, look, I think you guys kind of have to move away for a while from the interdisciplinary model and kind of go into your own silos and work with projects in your own subject. So we did that for a while, and the end result was is that we felt like that really wasn't necessarily the most rewarding. They weren't the bigger kind of projects that you could make something from. Mike's putting it mildly. Here's how Johanna felt. The lowest point was probably December to probably about February, where me, Mike, and Brian were like, oh my gosh, how do we do this? Like, we had gone so far into the deep end as far as this is what we think projects are. Wait, I don't think we know what projects are. Now we need to backtrack. How do we get out of this kind of thing? And so what happened was that we siloed ourselves into three individual subjects. And that created a whole high level of stress for literally everyone. And so it was about two months of just, okay, I don't know if the kids 
are feeling this. I think the kids hate us. I'm not entirely sure. And nothing the teachers tried seemed to be working. I remember getting to a point in January where it's like, my God, I don't know what else we can do. We've tried every possible thing. We've tried interdisciplinary. We went back to regular classroom, which had its benefits, but also was not really PBL. It really was not what we saw at a high tech high. We tried giving them some outside time. We tried, you know, we tried every possible thing, but it's not like all of a sudden we had super happy kids. But like you got through to June somehow. So what did you do? We had a vision of what it should be going back to high tech high. I think somehow, even with the disappointment and the frustration and the, oh my God, what do we do next? We knew it was too much to ask in one year that we figure it all out. Yeah. So we just hunkered down and, and you know, made the best of it. And we kept going. We just kept going. And I would, I'm imagining that in many ways we improved and we didn't realize it, mm-hmm. you know, through that, through that process. I mean, we probably wouldn't have survived if we didn't. There wasn't any dramatic turnaround, just a gradual process of figuring things out. So we thought that freedom was the answer, which, as you know, is not necessarily the silver bullet or the answer to this learning. And so what we had to do very, very quickly was put in structures and they weren't even like, you know, the fullest structures. We didn't even get full structures, I would say, until mid-year, maybe like January, February, was when we actually like got the fullest structures we possibly could have. And where we had like, this is what the expectation is. This is what this means. And like, and so I felt like it was a lot of floodwaters coming in and we were just putting sandbags up and up and up as fast as we could, trying to keep things at bay. Mike told me a little more about what they mean by structures. Your typical expectations and and types of things we call it professional habits instead of classroom habits or classroom you know behavior or whatever we kind of linked it to the real world and we put a point system in place by the spring we had all that together and that definitely helped so give me an example of like a specific thing that like you didn't have in place that then you were like okay this has to be a professional habit well cell phone for one thing you know I came from fifth and sixth grade where they weren't allowed to be out. And they tend to follow the adults more to ninth grade where, you know, they have their sense of independence and some of them have a, as you know, have a definite issue with cell phone usage. We thought the cell phone would be a great tool. Why prevent them from using something they already know how to use? We can, we can use it as a learning tool, that whole bit. Yeah. But again, for many students, they were, they, they were addicted to their phones. They also made norms for the bathroom to Charlene's relief. They created norms within themselves about, one, notifying the teacher and how many people they're going to let in the hallway. So now when I walk through the hallway, it's not a bunch of kids in the hallway. Like, Because I would literally walk in the hall my first year and be like almost having these little panic attacks inside. I'm like, why are these kids in the hallway? And they're just socializing. Inside the classroom, the teachers were getting better at designing and scaffolding projects. Structure also included more instructional structure, okay? It wasn't just a disciplinary piece. It was the instructional structure, more graphic organizers. And the only way to get good at project-based learning is to do it. Johanna had a way of describing their first project designs that really resonated with me. We also ourselves didn't have, I would say, the strongest projects, and they weren't necessarily built to withstand a lot of resistance, if that makes sense. Like they were designed so that in the ideal setting, this is how they would run and this is how they would go. Maybe with a little bit of give, if 
kids had some trip ups or whatever, but it wasn't, they weren't designed so that when the world imploded, <laughs> this project could still kind of figure itself out. So if there was a child who was so absolutely resistant, we didn't necessarily have plan B, C, or D for them. Sure. So what have you learned about designing resilient projects since then? Definitely that the entire project should not hang on group components. We were very much under the impression that it was and should be group driven. And I know that now we have individual components and there's an individual accountability piece. And even if there is a group part, it doesn't necessarily all hinge on every single person coming to the table every, every single day. Like, yeah, it'll probably suffer a little bit, but it's not like the whole project will just fall apart if one person either doesn't come to the table that day or if they decide that I don't want to do <laughs> that I want to do the project today. Um, and we've also realized that infinite choice is not the answer. Choice within boundaries is a much better way of going about it. I strongly endorse everything Johanna said there, but there's another thing about project-based learning, a flip side to this gloominess and self-criticism. Even a deeply flawed, naively designed project can have elements of magic and times when everything comes together. I love the way that Matt Pimentel puts it. There'd be certain days where students were doing project work and they just had that, I never know exactly how to describe it, that like that positive noise like that good hum, yeah. you know, it's like there's the good hum, the bad hum. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, and there'd be those days where you walk in and there's just the right amount of hush in the midst of the noise that you're like, there's a lot of productivity happening here. It's the um, best. You chase that like a drug. As yeah. A <laughs> yeah. And, and then, you know, the funny thing is it could literally be like 10 minutes later and the volume is cranked <laughs> up, like, you know, significantly more. Like, all right, seconds. that's over. Ten yes, seconds. 10 seconds Turns later, on you're a like, dime. it's noisy again. Yeah. You're like, all right, we lost it. Johanna was experiencing these moments too. You know, there's days when they were, you know, like really grinding through their projects. Those were like the glimmers that made me realize what we're doing is and can be even more awesome. Whereas I think back to that year before I joined PBL, it was like every day I'm like, oh my gosh, how how can I do this? What I don't know how I'm going to get through this, you know. And it's I wasn't seeing I was I really wasn't seeing those like genuine sparks and love of love of teaching. I know from experience that those magical days when the project takes on a life of its own can get you through a whole lot of painful slogging. So I get why the teachers are still on board with this. But I didn't really understand why Kayla and Simon, the students, decided to stay in the program. So I asked. Here's what Kayla told me. I don't know why I stayed. I guess I didn't really, I didn't feel like I wanted to go back to a regular classroom and like be the shadow in the background, be invisible, I guess. That's a pretty good reason. Hatakai Unbox is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. In the next episode, you'll hear what happened when Kayla, Simon, and the rest of their cohort went to 10th grade, and how 9th grade changed things after that first year. Thanks for listening. <laughs>